0: To say welcome to all of you. So, grab your Bibles, whether you're here or church at home, grab your Bibles today. Again, the book of Romans, chapter 13. We finish up this chapter together. We started, we're a little out of sequence. We jumped ahead a few chapters because this is such a relevant discussion for us to have concerning our relationship with government, our relationship with one another. And so, we want to continue our discussion on that. And so, grab your Bibles. And today, so it is that of Romans 13, starting with verse 8 in just a moment. So let me ask you a question, and then we're going to have prayer at the end like we did last week also. So let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever had a parking ticket? Raise your hand if you've ever had a, a parking ticket. Put your hand up. Anybody? Anybody? Okay. How many unpaid parking tickets in the room? Now, I don't want to see that, okay? that That's that's between you and the municipality where you got the ticket from, right? So here's the thing. Here's the way a parking ticket works. A parking ticket works. is It's like a rental agreement. When you pull up into space that you understand the what you owe. The requirement is that you feed the machine some money, whatever it requires, in order for you to rent that space for a certain amount of time. But what we understand about that of parking and a parking meter is that it's a continual debt. In other words, as long as you occupy the space, you have to continually put money in the meter. Uh, Reba and I recently were in Charleston and, you know, there's. if you've been to Charleston, there's meters everywhere. You have to pay to park and that's a big deal there. And, and so you pay it, but you only have two hours on the meter. And, and so what constantly in the back of your mind when you're away from your car is what? That your meter's going to run out. Well, I had that happen to me one time in Charleston, and I got a parking citation. And it's not a citation where it is, congratulations, you've won something, right? No, it's a, it's a $50 citation is what it was for, for my parking you know, citation. And, and, and so I, I put it in the glove compartment of the car, and I forgot about it. I don't know if you've ever done that before, but I kind of forgot about it. And so we went back again and we're sitting at the battery in downtown Charleston, we're parking and I happened to look over and there's a car on the other side of the road and it has this funny device on one of the front of the tires called a boot. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those or not. It's this beautiful yellow device that looks like a donut that keeps you from driving away because you have an unpaid ticket. And so all of a sudden, it came to my mind. The Lord just spoke to me in that moment, right? And said, Remember the ticket. And so while we were, the family was getting out of the car, I'm on my phone and I'm quickly paying this fine so I don't come back and get the reward of a boot on my car. But it's a continued debt that you have that you have to pay, you owe that. And so I thought about that when I'm going to read to you this morning from the book of Romans chapter 13, verse 7. It's a verse that we covered last week. It's about what we owe. It's In fact, it's a cost of citizenship. It simply says that if I live here under this government in this country, there is a cost to that. And so here's what it says in Romans 13 and verse 7, not just to be a rule of thumb of law, but yet of God's law also. It says, pay to all what is owed to them, Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. And so there's two words in there that really struck me. The word owed and the word that of respect. Because the tax part, well, I understand that, right? That's sort of the easy part for us to do. We know, you know, living in this country, that that's what we do. It's a cost of citizenship, so we pay our taxes. But when it comes to the part of respect and honor... That's where I begin to struggle a bit, and I think we all struggle there when it comes to that in government. Can I have a moment, as I set this up for us today, to move into chapter 13 and verse 8? Let me, let me set this up for you, and, and the reality of where we are today is that for many of you, according to government that the the last number of years some of you have struggled through these years and for some of you as we move forward in government for some of you it's going to be a struggle also so that's the reality of where we are and this sermon this morning, as last week, it's not about parties, and it's not about a particular office or a particular leader. It's not about who you voted for. Paul is talking to you and I in Romans 13 about how we have a relationship with government and what that looks like for you and I and how God receives glory from that proper relationship that you and I have with government. So what I realize is this, that not only do we owe taxes like you would owe to rent the space at a parking meter, But not only do we owe taxes, but we also owe respect, it says. And I put beside the word respect, qualified. I think that's important that we understand that. That Christians give secular government and secular government leaders qualified respect. Never unquestioning, never blindly following Because in the life of you and I as a believer, that there's only one absolute authority and that absolute authority is God. Amen. Can we say amen to that? Yes, that God is that one absolute authority in all of our lives. But also what I realize is in reading through this chapter, government was God's idea. Government was God's idea, and so God also appoints leaders. We respect those in authority in light of God's purpose, and we also can respect when we say no to government, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But qualified respect, what I realize is it's a way to acknowledge that there is a greater authority in this life than government or man or leadership. It establishes the great sovereignty of God over all things, including government. In fact, we discussed last week that you and I, in that of our, Paul uses the word subjection, in our subjection to government, that is a matter of our conscience. What does that mean? That means that you and I do not just obey or respect because we're afraid of the law, because we're afraid of being punished if we don't. That's not it at all. But we do that because we honor God in our obedience, And that's really important that we understand why we do what we do. Because we honor God within our obedience, but we never submit uncritically. And here's what this does for you and I in this world in which we live. Here's what it does for us in this of understanding that God is sovereign and that we submit out of our conscience, not because of law demanding, but we honor God in our obedience, is here's what it does for us. It helps us to not be so anxious. It does. It helps you and I to not be so fearful because it's God who has established government. It's God who appoints leaders. Even those, and I'm going to say this, and you've got to love me. understand this. You really have to love me. As a, as a Christian, you've got, to, you've got to say, Mark, I love you. I don't always like what you say, but I love you. But even those that do not follow him, he appoints. And that is biblical. It's biblical. I can't get around the truths of the Bible. And and so it's very biblical to say that. And we're going to read from the book of Jeremiah, which really gives us some insight into that in just a moment. And as Christians, in light of God's sovereignty, I truly believe that we've not been given the attitude or the latitude of that of always simply, uh, always angry and always hostile. And, and there's always this anxiety in our life when it comes to government. In fact, Jesus says to Some of the Pharisees' followers in the book of Matthew in chapter 22, they come to him and they ask him this question. We talked about it for a few minutes last week. They ask him this question about paying taxes to Caesar, right? And the Bible says they they came to ensnare him, is I think what the scripture uses, or entangle him is actually the word that is used there. And so they ask him about that. And what he says to them is, yes, you give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and you give to God what belongs to God. And he asked for the denarius, the coin. And he said, whose picture is on the coin? And they said, oh, Caesar's, of course. And that's what he said. You render to Caesar what is Caesar's, the taxes. But you never worship Caesar. You only worship the one that is engraved upon your hearts because God is absolute authority in our lives. And so what that means is this that we guard our heart from this ideological, I think, idea that government is our savior. Can I tell you, I can't be my savior. You cannot be my savior. We all make lousy saviors and government is not our savior. Understand that, right? It is not our savior. We only have one and that is Jesus. He's the absolute power of my life and your life and of the world. Yet God has designed government to have a place within our lives. So when I read last week seven verses to you from Romans chapter 13 about our relationship with government, what I realized is this, that it's bookended by chapter 12. Yes, well, that makes sense. And then the rest of chapter 13. And so chapter 12 talks about how we love our enemy. The rest of chapter 13, which we're going to talk about today, talks about how we love our neighbor. So what Paul does is he sandwiches this Relationship that you and I have with government in between loving our enemy and loving our neighbors. There has to be some reason for that, right? I can't just brush over that as well, that's just by chance that that happened. Remember, this is one letter in its totality written to the church at Rome by Paul. So there is reason for the way that it is worded. And I think that's important for us to understand. He ends chapter 12 in verse 21 by telling us something that perhaps we've heard before. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so it's simply, it's how I as a believer navigate this world that I live in, that I navigate things in this world that are not overtly Christian, and that government falls into that category. So here's what he says we owe. You ready? You say, Mark, I don't need to be reminded about all the things I owe because I owe already. You just wouldn't believe how much I owe. And so here's some things that the Bible says that you owe. One, that we give to government, that which is owed to government. What is that? That we pay our taxes, we obey the law, that we pay our speeding our tickets or our we pay our parking tickets. We respect and we honor even if it's not how we voted or yet we disagree with policy, but we simply do that because honoring God through our obedience. And, and I think that's, that's a very interesting thought because the first thing that comes to your mind is Paul has no idea what he's talking about, Right? Right. Paul, Paul had, how many times have you ever read the Bible and you say they have no idea what they're talking about? It's irrelevant to us. Right. Because it doesn't apply to where we are living. And we said this last week for the context, uh, a historical context for you and I. He's writing this under that of the rule of the Caesar of Rome, which is Nero. We believe at this time, Nero is not Christian friendly. Understand that. He's the guy that lights up Christians on poles, so he so they can be candles for his parties at night. Understand it? So he's not in love with Christians at all, and and so this is the this is the atmosphere in which Paul writes all these things to us. We owe, we owe government, and it says this, and we are to give to God what is owed to God, and what is that? It's our worship, and we worship. We worship none other. We pay taxes to the one that's on the coin, but we worship the one that's imprinted upon our hearts. He's the absolute power of our life. But then there's a third thing that we owe. That's about. That's what we're going to talk about today. So you can breathe a little bit. It's maybe not as quite as uh, sandpaper-ish. Maybe in some ways, as we did talk about last week, but we give to our neighbor what is owed to our neighbor. And I think it's it, it just gives us a moment to unpack that because there's respecting of our government. There's that of worship of God. And then there's this third thing that we have that we owe. And that is it's a responsibility to be a doer of good, that we overcome evil with good. Romans 12 and 21 says So for a moment, before we get to the book of Romans, go to the book of Jeremiah. It's a great Old Testament story. I want to share a moment with you from Jeremiah chapter 27 and verse 5 in just a minute. But let me tell you what's happening. Jeremiah is he's speaking God's word to God's people, the Israelites. But here's what's happening with the Israelites. They're in exile in Babylon is where they are. They're in exile in Babylon. And Babylon is not a very friendly nation. So how do you conduct yourself when living under secular government? How do you engage your community? How do you engage your neighbor when you're living under that kind of government? You overcome evil with good. Yes, we just read that. But how do you do that? How does that look for us when you are in exile like the Jews? How does that look for them? How does it look for us? Let me read to you Jeremiah 27 verse 5. Hang on because these are some really tough words for us. It's going to really I think it's going to be a catalyst for us to think through some of our thoughts that we've been having. Here's what he says. It is I talking this God speaking who, by my great power, my outstretched arm, have made the earth with the men and the animals that are on the earth. I give it to whomever it seems right to me, and I underline that part that I give it to whom it seems right to me. now I have given all these lands into the land of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And my first thought was, and I made a note, I thought Nebuchadnezzar took this, but the scripture says that God gives it to him, which is an interesting thought. And then he says, The king of Babylon, my servant. God even refers to him as my servant. And I have given him also the beast of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. And what that says is a moment is God always gives us hope. God always opens the window of hope in our lives. And he says there is a time of liberty coming for you. But simply hang on stay where you are and then he says then my nations and great kings shall make him their slave he said there's going to be judgment nebuchadnezzar will have to give an account for what he does as all have to but what about until then what about until then what about until the moment when things get better what do you do you see here's jeremiah speaking god's word to the to the the israelites in babylonian exile and he's simply saying to them that you overcome evil, and the best way to do that is for you to engage yourself in your community and in your city, and and that even though it's a community that you don't really like or you wish it was different. And when I read this and reading a little research on this, what I realized that in Babylon, The Israelites would live completely separate from the Babylonians, and they would do that because the Babylonians, they were idol worshipers, so they didn't want to touch those people that they considered to be unclean, so they separated themselves from them. They always kept them at arm's length. It's sort of like the Old Testament version of social distancing. It really is, right? They kept them at arm's length because they didn't somehow want to be infected by their sinful behavior. They refused to engage with culture, and what God says through Jeremiah to them is this. He's not saying, hey, don't, don't, lo-. he's saying, don't lose your identity. He's saying, don't lose sight of the sinfulness of the Babylonians. Yet he's called you to engage in the culture in where you live in Babylon, even though you don't like being there, even though you don't like Nebuchadnezzar, even though you don't like the rules at that point, that you are to engage to make the world around you a better place, is what he's saying. So he's saying, that you are to work for the prosperity and the peace of where you find yourself, even if it's in Babylon, he's saying. You never lose sight of their wickedness or their idol worship, but you overcome evil with good. And I thought, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for Mark or all of us in this room? Because I think that in our life, there's so many times we find ourselves so busy standing against standing against everything in life that we fail to stand for mercy and grace and forgiveness in life. I think we find ourselves fighting against everything. Then we lose sight of our call to make our community better at times. I believe at times in our life, we're so focused on what is wrong that we fail to point people to what is right and what is just and what is loving and what is hopeful in life. But I get, I get it. I get why we have these feelings. I'm not separated from life. Understand that. I'm not a monk living in a monastery. That's not me. Understand that. No, I get why you have the feelings that you have. Whether you've had them for some time in the past or whether you're preparing yourself to have them for the future. I get it. But what I realize is this as we go into the future, if we live our lives cut off from our culture because we don't agree with everything that's going on around us, we miss an opportunity. We miss an opportunity to overcome evil with good. So here's what he says to those Christians or those Israelites in Babylon he says build houses and settle in and have kids and work hard and you think but but we're in exile and we're surrounded by idol worshippers so so you know how does that work with us being in that kind of situation we're ruled by a king we didn't choose we're struggling to respect his policies you know his actions are absolutely unchristian and here's what he says to those people in in exile he says one keep your identity Keep your identity. Don't lose that. But two, he says to them, seek peace. Keep your identity, but seek peace with all men. And I think we struggle with that balance at times. We struggle with that of how to overcome evil with good. And I think because that we make people our enemies. And what I realized a long time ago, you know, and I had to kind of grow into this, that people are not our enemies. Understand that. It is the power of darkness that blinds people to the sovereignty of God is our enemy. It is that is that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, against rulers in high places. It's the power behind people that is not our enemy, under, or that is our enemy. Understand this, that we fight against those powers. We are called to overcome evil with good. So I bring to bear what I called this week the weapon of mass construction. You know, that's why I have a weapon of mass construction. And that weapon in my arsenal of mass construction is my debt of love to those around me in my community. We have this opportunity To pay our debt to society. You say, Mark, that sounds as if we've done something wrong and we have to pay for that. We have a debt that we do owe. Here's what Romans thirteen and eight says. Here it is Owe no one anything except to love each other. Man, that is that would be a powerful t shirt, wouldn't it? Oh no one anything except to love one another for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law for the commandments you shall not commit adultery you shall not murder you shall not steal you shall not covet you shall not command or or, or any other commandment are summed up in this word you shall love your neighbor as yourself he said just as we owe government qualified respect and honor just as we owe god our soul worship we owe God's creation the continuing debt of love. And Paul ties this to the law, specifically the Ten Commandments he does. Because why? Because God's law is God's instruction book on how you and I simply love one another and love those around us because it culminates in this thought of loving our neighbor as ourselves. Verse 10 says this, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. It's, the, it's not just a point of the law, but love is a fulfilling of the law. That obeying God's law in our relationship with our neighbor is the obedient thing, is the loving thing. And the loving thing is the obedient thing for our lives is exactly what he's saying. That Paul is writing this while under the government of Nero that we've already talked about. And and he he is completely unchristian and not Christian friendly. And what he says is this, love does no wrong, he says in verse 10. Love does no wrong. What does that mean? What that means is this, that loving is not always the easy thing to do. That's exactly what it means. And how do I do this? Well, Paul says, let me tell you how you do this. It is the guidelines. It is the instruction book through God's commandments. That's how you do that. It's not how you feel. It's not how I am emotionally today. It's not my instincts. It's not my wisdom. It's not, my, it's not what social media directs me to do. It's not the social climate of our nation. No. How does love fulfill the law? By doing good for others. And love does not harm your neighbor. Even when you're living in Babylon. Even when you're living under Nero. Even when you're living in our culture. It does no one harm. What does that mean? That means that I seek only good for others, that I refuse to participate in harming others, that we live with respect for our neighbor. But Mark, do we have to respect those that disagree with us? Yes, you do. Absolutely, you do. Well, I don't, have to, I don't have to socialize with them. But yes, you do have to socialize with them. That's what he's saying to you and I. That's, that, that's the whole point of reading Jeremiah to you today. Yes, we do. It's a continual exhibit of love through our lives. It's how God cares for us. It's how God has cared and continues to care for us. And he says this, that avoid harm. And, and I thought, what does that mean to avoid harm? Because, you know, we, at first we think it has to be physical harm, right? It has to be me laying my hands on someone. Because there's someone in your life that has absolutely caused you to have the thought that I would really like to choke them, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, and all of a sudden you just got a mental picture of them at that moment. There is someone in your life that you wanted at some point to probably lay hands upon. And I'm not talking about that of what you find in the book of James about praying for them either. It's not that. No. Yes. So what is he talking about of our... And when I begin to think about it, what is the most powerful tool that you and I have that the Bible says? It's like a double-edged sword, and it is our tongue. It's our words. It's the things that we speak to others, and it's the words that we say about others. And I am guilty of that just as much as anyone else in this room because there's moments when I get frustrated and I say things that I shouldn't say. Yeah, no, yes, it is, yes, yes, right. How many of you times have you watched something on news or, or you've read something through social media and, and you say, Man, this this person is an absolute idiot. You you have said that, right? And that's not a nice word and I understand that, but you've said that you've had that thought and what I realize that my words harm more than anything else and what God says to me in this is when I'm living in an environment where I feel like it is over, overseen by secular government, whoever is in office, whatever party is ruling, whoever it might be, that what I realize is this that my call in life is to love others and do others no harm. Because there's something more powerful in my life than just my vote. And that's truth. And the thing that in my life that is more powerful in my vote is my love for others. That is more powerful than any vote that I would ever cast for anything or anybody is that I love my neighbor. Even those that think differently, even those that have different values than I have, even even those that, you know, they're either maybe they're not Christian or maybe they're of another faith or whoever they are that I'm called to simply love them in a continual and continual love. And that is and and not to harm them. And what I realize, I think there's a couple of things. and, And what I realize is this. There's two things that you have to avoid in life. And I think this one is this. You have to avoid surrounding yourself with believers only. I think that you have to really avoid And You think, Mark, that is the weirdest thing for a pastor to ever say. But listen to what I'm saying to you. Because this is not a us against them kind of situation in this world. That's not what this is about. We overcome evil with good. And holding people at arm's length because they're different than you, because they think different and value things different, what I truly believe that is, that is a failure of love, that is a failure to serve, and that is a failure to do good, and it actually does harm to people. Well, amen. That's true. Send me an email. I'll be glad to have a discussion with you. I really would. Yes. Yes. Because it's true. But here's the other thing. I think we need to avoid losing our identity as a believer while surrounding ourselves with people who believe differently. I think we need to avoid losing our identity in those areas because there is truth in this life. Understand this, not everything is subjective. There is absolutes in this life. Listen, Daniel serves Nebuchadnezzar with respect. We talked about that for a moment last week. He serves him with great respect and he actually disobeys him even in a very respectful way because he refuses to simply cease God's obedience in his life. He knows when to say no. Listen, we're never called as believers. We are never called to unqualified obedience as a believer because God is the absolute power of our life. So we protect our identity and who we are while immersing ourselves in the community that is around us to make the world a better place. We don't love our community and our culture by compromising our obedience. In fact, the opposite is true. We love our city. We love our community. We love our country the greatest way possible. And that is by remaining obedient to God's commands. Because we fulfill the law through loving our neighbor. Mark, move on, please. Okay? Because I'm getting really frustrated with you right now. Okay, I will. So understand the time in which you live. Here's verse 11. And this is where we tie everything together. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, excuse me, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling or jealousy. Well, what is he talking about? We know the time in which we live, he says. We know the hour in which we live. And, and when I, I begin to really think through this, what I, what I realize is that while living in one kingdom, we are citizens of a greater kingdom. That's what he's teaching us. Is actually what he's saying to us. That we live under a government that God has established for a place within our lives. And we respect and we honor that. Absolutely. Conditionally, we respect and honor that. But our citizenship is of an eternal kingdom, is what he says. So I put that in Mark words, right? Mark words are, this is not all there is. This is not all there is. And we live like it is. I think we live like this is the ultimate. We, we find ourselves worrying and overloaded with anxiety in life because we think, well, this is all there is. And, and there's nothing beyond that. And when I read this text, what I realized that this world in which we live, this moment is a nanosecond in our eternity. I realized that. And that's the perspective that I live with. He says the night is gone, that the day is at hand, that what he's saying is the eternal the eternal is about to burst through the darkness of our lives in this world. That we're closer to that in what we think. So the point is, we live every moment and we live every day understanding the brief nature of this life that we have. That there is something better. Understand that. That there is something better. And we will pray and we will work and we will live We will pursue peace while we are here. We will make the world a better place. We'll fight against injustice. We'll do the things that God has called us to to make this world a better place. But we do all of that in the shadow of the life to come. Because there is more than this. There's more than this. And when when I live life like that, what I realize is this, that when I'm worried or when I'm concerned or when I'm anxious or when I'm angry or when I'm disappointed or disillusioned or dismayed, when, I, when I'm suffering through those kinds of things, I temper all that with this truth that there's more than this world, there's more than this moment, there's more than the country that I live in, there's more than the community I live in. And what that does, though, it fuels, it fuels me to fulfill the law, not escape my responsibilities. But it fuels me to fulfill the law by loving my neighbor and doing them no harm. He says that we cast off the works of darkness. We put on the armor of light. And what he's saying to you and I is our actions matter. That my actions matter with my hands and my words. That the things I say, my actions really matter in this life. Because my actions are more than just resulting in consequences that I can see. But my actions have eternal consequences in this world. Both in a positive and a negative way. So he ends this chapter, and so you're thinking, thank the Lord he ended this chapter, right? Verse 14, he says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And at conversion, we are wrapped and clothed in his righteousness. We know that. But what this means in context, I truly believe, is we live daily as if we're physically clothed in him so how does that change my interaction with the world how does that change my interaction with life it says to me that that i owe a debt of love to those around me in my community I owe a debt of great love to those that align with my thoughts and those that don't align with my thoughts. I owe a great debt of love to all of God's creation because I live my life as if I am clothed, literally clothed in Christ. And that changes everything. You see, Paul said to us in Galatians chapter six and verse 10, he says, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. But I underline, let us do good to everyone. And, 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 I, you know, looking that up and saying, OK, there has to be some other biblical explanation to this everyone thing. Right. And what I realize that it means everyone. It means everyone that my call in life is to make the world a more peaceful and loving place and I work toward that through the power of God working through my life through sharing the gospel through proclaiming hope in people's lives And I respect and I honor my government conditionally. And what I realize is that through all of that, God receives glory. And that above everything in life is the point. That's the point. And that brings the anxiety level down in my life and the fear level down in my life regardless of who's in leadership or what kind of government we have. God is the absolute power in this world. So this is an opportunity for you and I The same opportunity that we had years before, it's the same opportunity today. God has not changed. We just need to be reminded of it for a moment. It's an opportunity for you and I to love our neighbor and to do them no harm and to make Christ known in a powerful way. It's a moment for the church to step up for the opportunity. So, we're going to pray. Last week we had corporate prayer together. I'm going to ask you for us to do that again today. Last week we, we prayed for our government, we prayed for our leaders. I think today we should pray for the church. And you say, Mark, why? Because the church is still that instrument of God where the greatest change in the world is brought about. Not government, but church. And you and I have an opportunity as being part of the church, the big C of the church to be a part of this change in the world, to love our neighbor, to do them no harm, and for God to receive glory through our lives today. So let's do this for a moment. Would you stand with me, please? And and I, I don't like this, I don't like all the spiritual calisthenics and the instructions that you know, and if you grew up in church, stand, bow your heads, you know, step away, out of your seat, all those kinds of things and, and sort of robotic. But I think there is something important about us coming together and praying. And the posture that we chose last week was kneeling because it humbles us before the sovereign God who we are making a statement, I believe, in saying that he is Lord over all things, absolute. So I know that you want a social distance away from each other, but there's plenty of room. But could I ask you, if you are comfortable not judging anyone if you are not, and maybe you just want to pray from your seat, but if you are comfortable in doing this right now, would you come and kneel down front somewhere or across the front? Would you come and, and do that with me? And, and let's, just, let's just have a time to pray. I think that's important that we, we, we have this moment today we spend together in prayer. Again, if you're not comfortable, no no one judging here, no one. But for us to take this moment and let's pray together. So let's pray. Father, these words that you have spoken to us, through your servant Paul, has caused us to search our hearts and our minds. Has called us to caused us to, maybe even repent of some things that we have done and said and thought. Has caused us, Lord, to have a greater love for our neighbor, even those that we don't even maybe even know, or we know from a very far distance, but yet we find ourselves praying for them. So, Father, as your church, as the body of Christ, your church that you have paid for, Father, through your son, Jesus, that we come before you today in prayer together, joining our hearts and our minds and our voices together. Father, being reminded of an opportunity that we have always had in our culture but yet a reminder today in this moment and where we are that we have an opportunity, God. We can can worry and we can be anxious, God, or we can love our neighbor as ourselves and do them no harm and we can bring you honor and glory, Father, through loving each other. God, I know that it is so easy for us to love each other in this room. But God, the challenge is to love those outside of here and those that are different than us and think different and have different values. So God, I ask today through your power and the power of your Holy Spirit that you would love through us, that you would love through us in a way that you never had before, seemingly God, a power that maybe we've never experienced before, the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would love through us in ways, God, that we have never dreamt possible. God, that we would, we would feel and hear your voice, Lord, in moments where we should speak to others or we should invest in a conversation with someone else or we should meet a need in their life. But, God, that you would use us to love our neighbor and do them no harm. Thus, Father, we believe that we overcome evil with good. Because, God, we can fight with our own hands. We can fight with our own words. We can do those things, God, and it avails to nothing. But when we come against these powers of darkness, Lord, that has always been, God, and is working today in people's lives, when we come against that in the power of your Spirit and that of doing good to others, God, we know that we can overcome evil. So, God, use us. Use us, Lord. God, help us to temper our words. And God, in those moments when we don't, there's grace and there's mercy and forgiveness for us. But God, may the words that come from our mouths be words of encouragement and in words of love and forgiveness and grace and mercy. Father, as you have continually loved us, may we continually pay that debt of love to those around us. And in that, you will receive glory and you will receive honor. And God, that's the point in all things. We pray for our nation, Lord. Our nation that is greatly divided over not just one thing, but many things, God. And you know that. And God, that we pray that you would use the church. You would use the church that you have planted in this nation. That you would use the church, Father, to exemplify and to model what is that of loving our neighbor. Let that start with us, God. Let that begin to be the catalyst that would spread through our communities and and through our culture. And let that begin with us. So we bow before you as a sovereign, absolute God. And we trust you today. We trust you today, Father. Thank you, Lord, that you called us and that is so absolutely humbling. May we love our neighbor as ourself and do them no harm. And Father, these things we ask and your powerful Sovereign name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Father.